welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for our next lesson in our series on the heart of Philippians with Adam Barnes. In today's lesson, Adam will be going through Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 through 4, 1, where Paul looks at maturity and tells the Philippian church to continue on in their maturity. Well, thanks for joining us for this lesson. We hope that you enjoy it. Chapter 3 is wonky because it's not, you know, a lot of times Paul will kind of like what we saw in chapter 1. He'll make a point, support it, support that, and then go out the same way that he came in. It's very nice. It creates that chiasm. You're like, okay, I see what he's doing with his argument. It's not like that in chapter 3. Chapter 3, he's kind of all over the place. And he starts out by saying finally, but then, of course, it's only halfway through the book. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to track. And so it was hard to break it up. So we had to break it up in a weird spot um, where we ended last week. I think we ended in verse 14. We're going to pick up in verse 15 today and go through chapter 4 verse 1. So let's look at it really quickly. Uh, This is a short lesson, uh, but there's a couple of things that I want to spend a little bit of extra time on. So you might notice that your packet's a lot smaller than it usually is. That's because I want to spend some time on a couple of the graphs and charts. So the point is, is that mature Christians... Not all Christians do this. Paul actually calls out the mature Christians in today's passage. Mature Christians are to persevere in life joyfully, living out a life of humility. Here's the problem. We're all at different levels of spiritual maturity. Every single person in this room probably isn't at the same level of spiritual maturity as another person in this room. Everybody's at a different point. You guys remember how we showed the sanctification chart? that one week and we said some people are here some people are here some people. we're all at different levels but it doesn't matter where you at where you are at on the chart if you're not Jesus you have room to grow you have there's the opportunity for you to grow and to persevere and that's what Paul says we saw it last week he says not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect like if this is perfection he says I'm not there yet but I press on I'm still reaching forward to lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold of me. We're going to talk about what he meant by that. So, additionally, we have a choice of which pattern to follow. He's going to make that point today. He says, you can observe me. You can join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in me. Or, there's these other people who have chosen to follow after their own selfish ambition who have chosen to follow after the pattern of the world. So we have a choice to make. And that applies both, even though I think he's talking just about unbelievers there, it applies both to believers and unbelievers, and we'll see why. So we can take the mature, appropriate, and authentic, not the, uh, what's the opposite of authentic? Counterfeit. We can choose the mature, appropriate, and authentic perspective of Jesus Christ, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, or one of selfish ambition and empty conceit like the rest of the world. And it's an important choice because our mindset determines our attitude, our actions, and our words. And these choices we make bring about both benefits for doing the right stuff and consequences for doing the wrong stuff. So choose wisely. That's the bottom line application of what Paul's saying today. He's going to tell us to live a life with a mature perspective, with one of humility and persistence. So let's see the goals. Outlining goals. We're going to look at the mature perspective. We're going to see the authentic and counterfeit perspectives. And then we're going to look at the summary. Really short passage today, but there's some things within those passages I want to spend some time on. So what are the goals? The goals are to understand what type of attitude, mindset, perspective believers are to employ. Because there's a lot of them. You can choose to look at things through a lot of different lenses in a lot of different ways. But Paul actually gives us the pattern today. He tells us what we're supposed to look at things through and how we're supposed to view things. Number two, we want to understand the connections between eternal life justification, Christian life sanctification, and final glorification. You say, Adam, I've had two, two. I've had 412. I know all that stuff. I'm not talking about know what they are. I'm talking about understand what the connections are. Understand what the connections are between justification and sanctification and what the connection between justification and glorification are. Because Paul spent some time on this. If you don't, it's a difficult if you read this, even in the NASB, it's difficult. You're like, I don't understand what he means by that. What does he mean, have this attitude? What does he mean, according to this pattern? What pattern? And we're going we're to see how everything that he's written before in chapter 3 is going to culminate 
in this mature perspective that he's talking about here. So we want to see how they all come together. Three, we want to be motivated to keep growing to live like mature believers. Mature believers. Four, to understand that pattern that Jesus, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus set for us. And once you understand those things, you can start to identify counterfeit perspectives or false perspectives or the wrong way to look at things. And when you do, that's important because if you can do that, then you can self-evaluate effectively. You can look at yourself and say, am I looking at things through the right lens? Am I doing it appropriately? Am I in unity with what Paul was saying is the appropriate way to look at things? Am I in, do I have integrity with, the, with that pattern or am I off? Because when you understand the differences, then you can self-evaluate and maybe help people in your family or people that are close to you. Helps you to effectively admonish or exhort. So let's read the passage. Starting in verse 15, he says, Let us therefore, as many are as perfect, and in Paul, when you see that word perfect, he's normally using the Greek word that means mature. Which is funny because he just said he hasn't reached maturity. So we're going to see how that fits. He says, let us therefore, as many are as mature or perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. That's an important passage, but when you look at it just by itself, it's, it's difficult, it's confusing. And he said, brethren, join following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Here's the bad news. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now I tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm, Lord, my beloved. So he tells them to stand firm. He gives them all of these different patterns, and he says, have this mindset, and have this attitude, and do all of this stuff. And if you don't understand what he said before, and really what the themes of the book have been, this is going to be difficult to comprehend, so we're going to have to spend some time pulling it apart. So let's talk about for a second the mature perspective. Do you guys remember last week uh, we ended with Paul saying that all those accolades, everything that he had obtained to, and everything that he had worked for, he said, I, I consider all that the rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his death. And so this week he's going to summarize that by, and say, Let us therefore, as many are as perfect, have this attitude. When you see that, it should jump out, because if you remember, didn't he say, I don't consider myself as being there. I haven't obtained it yet. I'm not perfect. He actually says it twice. But then here he says, let us, therefore, as many are as perfect. So how can that be? How can he be both mature and not mature at the same time? We'll see it. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you. He's saying for all the spiritually mature out there, if you're spiritually mature, listen up. You should look at things from this perspective, the one that I just described. If you aren't looking at things from the appropriate perspective, God's going to reveal that to you. And it's key here that you see that the word for attitude in verse 15, have this attitude, it really refers to a perspective. It's a way of looking at things. He says, have this perspective. And the type of perspective or the word that he used is one that um, directs a person or motivates a person towards action or to act on something. So do you guys get that? Do you understand that the way that you look at things, your belief about something affects how you live? Do you agree with that? That if you, if you think or know something to be true, you're going to act with that in mind. And that's what Paul's saying here. Have this attitude. Because of everything we just talked about, and we're going to see specifically what he just talked about, have this attitude. Take this perspective. Remember, Proverbs 4, 20, 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Whatever is inside is going to come out, and that's what he's saying here. 
how you look at things or what's in your heart is going to manifest itself in your actions and behavior. So what perspective is in view in verse 15? I want you to see it at the outset that the mindset of humility and persistence, humility and persistence is the mindset that he's talking about. When he says have this attitude, when he says look at things through this perspective, he's saying look at things from a humble and persistent perspective. And I'm going to prove it to you here in just a second. Paul realizes that he has room for growth and maturity because he's already said, not that I've already obtained it, and not that I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having grasped it yet or laid hold of it yet, but I press on towards the goal. So he says that he hasn't obtained perfection, but he presses on so that he can lay hold of the same thing for which Jesus laid hold of him. He hasn't obtained perfection. That's humility. He's saying, I know I'm not there yet. And then he talks about pressing on. That's persistence. And he does it two verses in a row, by the way. Twice he says, I haven't achieved it. I'm not there yet. That's him humbly saying, I know I've got room to grow. And then he says, but I press on. We know that Jesus laid hold of Paul for what reason? You say, what does it mean that Jesus laid hold of him? He presses on so that he may lay hold of that for which also Jesus laid hold of him. Why does Jesus lay hold of Paul? If you were to say that, what was the purpose that Jesus laid hold of Paul? To use him for his uh, glory. Okay, if you use him specifically to what? Help grow the church. Spread the, yeah. Like what? Disciples. Disciples. Exactly like you. Why does he lay hold of you? Why does Ephesians ten? Why does Ephesians two ten say that he saves you? What are you created for? You're created for good works. You're created for this type of good work. But that's not all. We know that God's will for believers, what does he say in Romans 8, 29? That his ultimate goal is for all believers. Conformed. Conformed to his image. Whose image? Christ. This is a big deal in this passage. Because he's going to talk about conforming at the end of this passage. Because ultimately you will be conformed to his image. Ultimately you will look just like Jesus. Which is cool to think about. And the whole goal, or the whole point of what Paul is saying today, is that you can live a life that's in between. And the closer that you are to Jesus, the better your life's going to be. From God's perspective, not from the world's perspective. So this is why Jesus laid hold of Paul, so that he could use him, like Kira said, to make disciples, and so that we would be conformed to Christ's image, like Kevin said. We know that God's will for believers become more and more like Jesus, to be conformed to his image. Both of these things, good deeds and conforming to Jesus' image, are aspects of what? Say it. You're exactly right. It's sanctification. That is your present tense, sanctification. Both of these things, what you do, your good deeds, and how you look more and more like Jesus, your progressive sanctification, these are both aspects of that. And so I wanted to spend some time talking about that. Because in verse 13, he reiterates that he, though he hasn't laid hold of complete maturation yet, he will not let his past. He's forgetting what lays behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He's not going to let his past be a hindrance for his future growth as he reaches for a reward. In humility, Paul admits his room for growth, and then he expresses his intention to persist. So when you go back and you look and see, what is he talking about when he says, have this mindset? This is the mindset he's talking about. One of persistence, I'm going to reach forward, I'm going to continue to grow, and I'm going to have a mindset of humility when I do it. I'm going to know that I'm not there. I'm going to know that it's okay that other people aren't as far along as I am, or I'm not as far along as they are. Because we're all growing. We're all at different points. 
So why does Paul say that he hasn't obtained maturity, but instructs those who are mature, including himself, to take on his perspective? He says it because maturing towards perfection is a it's a process. Some are further along, some are more mature. So let's spend some time looking at this chart. And you guys tell me if you agree or disagree with it. I think I have it like this. So this is your life after you've believed. What's it called when you believe? What's the $5 word, theological word for eternal etern life salvation? When you believe, when you believe, <laughs> I went to him. <laughs> when you believe, you're justified. This is when you get that starter package. You get eternal life, you get the Holy Spirit, you're made spiritually alive, you get a spiritual gift. This is the starter package. This is the starting line. At this point, you become spiritually alive. Before this, you weren't spiritually alive. You didn't have a dormant spirit in you that was waiting to come out. You were dead. Is what he says in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So when you believe in Jesus, you are justified. This is what... People think that's the finish line. I know. That's exactly right. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying, which is why nobody talks about this passage. It's because everybody doesn't... They don't get it. It doesn't make sense if you think that your justification is the end of the road. Paul's actually talking about spiritual maturity here because there's these people here who are spiritual infants in 1 Corinthians 3 he talks about it Hebrews 5 talks about it uh, and then he talks about over here is the rest which you can say is some level of spiritual maturity and now I'm going to cap it because nobody can do this. Right? This is Jesus. He's the only person that really was glorified in his body. Someday, all who are justified will be eventually glorified. That's when your position in Christ will match your experience. Right now, your experience doesn't match it. You are in Christ. You are in the body. You have his righteousness, but you don't live like it yet. So you don't experience fully what it's going to be like to be in the glorified body. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is your spiritual life. Because now, you have spiritual life. Who is the burden of responsibility on to go from here to here? Us. It's us. us. Your decisions that you make are going to determine how far along this chart that you are. And this is crude. I'm not saying it's science. But it's a way to graphically represent what Paul's talking about here. With Peter 2.2. He actually talks about, it's actually talking about spiritual injury, but he says long for new, long uh, for the spiritual milk, so that you may grow in respect to salvation. So we know that there's a growth aspect here. So when Paul says, I haven't attained it yet, I haven't attained the glorified body yet, I'm not there yet, but for all of you who are mature, for all of us who are somewhere after this point, have this attitude. So really what he's talking about here, he's saying there's a whole bunch of people who are somewhere here. And don't forget, he's talking to the Philippians who are pretty much doing it right. I would say of all the people that Paul wrote to, the Philippians were the furthest along. So he's saying, therefore, as many are as, many are as mature or complete or however he says it, he's saying, I'm not here yet, but we are here. And if we're here, then we need to act and live like mature Christians. That's the point of what he's going to say here in just a second. So remember from past lessons, 
Humility, I made this point without showing you this chart, humility is a sign of maturity. Spiritual humility is a sign of spiritual maturity. Most people who are infants don't come out spiritually mature. They have to work and by experience is what it says in Hebrews 5.12. It says who by practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. So when people first believe, what do they need? What do they need to grow? Training. What? Training. That's exactly right. Teaching. They need training. Uh, what else do they need? Encouragement from other believers. Bingo. I was going to say motivation, but it's the same thing. You need training, but you at some point there has to be something. Something has to get the wheels going. Something has to start turning people towards this progressive sanctification. Otherwise, all of us would have the same little motor and we'd all be chugging along and doing great. But you guys know and I know that from society, just because somebody believes, just because they're justified, doesn't mean that they ever get out of this. There's a whole world full of Christians who are spiritual infants because nobody encouraged them appropriately, because nobody taught them appropriately to grow in the grace and knowledge. So it takes both. And we have a role to play in that. There's a level of discipline. That's why Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not everybody's going to be faithful, so not everybody's going to get the same level of rewards. If you're here, you're justified, you'll be in the kingdom, you have eternal life. <coughs> but the level of your experience in the kingdom is going to be very much dependent upon what you do here. Really, what level of spiritual maturity you're at. Because that involves humility, it involves sacrifice, it involves unity. Everything that we study so far, your effective participation in the gospel message is going to determine that. And then he, he, I don't, to be honest, I don't know what he means by this. I think that it can mean a lot of different things. But he says right after this, have this attitude. He, even though we haven't obtained it yet, we're going to live a life of persistence. Which we're going to reach forward to it in humility, knowing that we have room to grow. Have this attitude, those of you who are mature. Because if you have a different attitude, God's going to reveal that to you. So you can take that a lot of different ways. He follows up with an interesting point about as someone taking a different perspective when he says that God will reveal it to him. This could be a statement dealing with mature believers with the right attitude. could be dealing with the Philippians specifically. Or it could be just dealing with all people in general. It works either way. Uh, but either way, I'm not sure what to make of it. If I had to say what I think, I would say that because Paul knew of the Philippians' maturity, that they would eventually see that the perspective that he's promoting is the appropriate one. I think he's leaving it in God's hands at this point to say, look, I'm not worried about you guys. Because remember, he'd already say, I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus in chapter 1. He's already said that. He already has this feeling of confidence towards their spiritual growth and maturity. So I think what he's saying here is that, look, you guys are doing it. You're doing it with the right motives. You're doing it faithfully. And even if you're not doing it with the right perspective yet, that'll come. God's going to show you that what I'm saying is right, essentially. I think that's what he's saying. Or if you don't have just the right attitude that the Holy Spirit may convict you and say, you're getting off the path here. 100%. 100% he could. I think that, and I think that's part of why he wrote what he wrote in this book, to talk about motives. We spent a whole lesson on motives. Because we've seen believers... In this book of Philippians, we've seen people who have trusted in Christ who are proclaiming him with the wrong motives. They're doing it out of selfish ambition and empty conceit rather than from pure motives. So it very well could be that he's talking about those people in uh, Ephesus or Rome, wherever he's at. And so, because we know that that's a truth in Scripture. If you are in sin and if you're out of fellowship, will God chasten you? He will. Discipline. It says he disciplines or scourges every son whom he receives in Hebrews 12. We know that that's a principle. Spiritual growth, part of that is that you get disciplined. How are you going to know any better if the Lord doesn't discipline you? Just like your Heavenly Father disciplined you. 
Won't he do the same? Or just like your earthly father did. Won't he do the same? That's what he says. I'm getting the belt. Say what? I said, oh, I'm getting the belt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. So then he says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've obtained. What do you think he means by that? What do you think he means? Hey, when he says, you know what? I think it means to not stop growing. I mean, that you still have to live up to the maturity level that you're at now. Don't don't go backwards. That's exactly what I think, too. So he's saying, look, if you're along this, if you've reached this level, live like it. Don't go back here. You've attained here. Don't go back and live, put yourself under the bondage of the flesh. Don't go back and live like something that you don't know, but attain to that same level. Live by the same standard to which we retain care is the idea of living out what you know to be true. Do you guys know something differently now about your Christian life? Do you guys know something about the faith? Do you know something spiritually that you didn't when you grew, when you first believed? Then why would you go back? But guess what? We do it. We've already talked about Romans 6 where he says, Stop presenting your members of your bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. We know that to be true. We know that in our union with Christ, when he died and rose again to a new life, we died and rose again to a new life. We don't have to sin, but we do anyway. Paul's saying, don't do that. You, you know that you died and rose with Christ. You are more spiritually mature than you were, so don't go backwards. Go forwards. Press on towards the goal. Reach forward for the prize. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm forgetting about that stuff. I'm only focused on moving forward. That's what Paul's talking about here. But you can't make that distinction if you think that justification is the end of the line. If you think that you are ultimately justified and sanctified, then why do they give it two names? And why does Paul talk about growing and reaching forward? You can't. And by the way, you can't make sense of half of the New Testament. Christians demonstrate integrity in their beliefs when their actions demonstrate their beliefs and their words. We've talked about that a thousand times in this class. Integrity is when your action meets your word, when they're in unity. It's the exact same thing that Paul's talking about here. If you know it, show it. If you believe it, then you should live like it. If you've grown, don't go act like a baby again. That's what this passage says. He says, you know what? You should all be teachers by now, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food because solid food is for the mature. So if you are on solid food, don't act like you're on milk. That's his whole point. Keep living to that same standard to which you've attained. I don't, know, I don't know if I made this a teacher note or if I put it in here, but someday Satan will be chained. And the fallen world system will be restored, and as we will see here in a second, we're going to receive glorified bodies that are free from fleshly pools. It's a big deal. When we get our glorified body, the pride of life will be gone, the fallen world system will be dealt with, and we're not going to have the fleshly pools. That's cool. It's even cooler that we can live like it now. If we have a mindset, and if we look at things to the appropriate perspective, then we can dominate our flesh instead of our flesh dominating us. The chains have been broken. It doesn't have the power. If we're sinning, it's because it's on us, not on the flesh. We don't have to succumb to the fallen world system. We don't have to. We can live that type of life right now. So when you see verses and you hear JB say, you can live a quality of your eternal life right now, that's what he's talking about. You don't have to live like your old self anymore. However, right now in our lives as Christians, there is a temptation to regress or to go back to the way that we were before conversion. Or even back to the way of life when we were less mature. Here, Paul exhorts mature Christians, as many are as mature, for as many as are complete, he says to live with integrity by living like mature Christians. If you are mature, live like you're mature. 
If you have grown, live like you've grown. It's pretty straightforward, but it's kind of complicated when, the way that he words it. Then he says, brethren, join in following my example. And then he switches it right after he says, follow my example, because there are people that are following his example too. And he says, join in following my example, and then look or observe at those who are according to the pattern you have in us. He spent this entire book up to this point establishing what that pattern is. He gave Jesus as the example. He gave himself as an example. He gave Timothy as an example. And he gave Epaphroditus as an example. It's not ironic. It's not happenstance that he did that. He's making a point so that when he gets here and says, there is an appropriate way to look at things. There's a right way to look at life. And there's a schematic or a blueprint or a perspective or a pattern that we've established that you can live by. And so here, Paul moves into the different options that the Philippians can choose to follow. The first is he, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. In the previous verses, he called for unity in an attitude or perspective of humility and persistence. Now he gets excuse me. <clears throat> now he gets specific and says to join following his example and to watch those who are doing it right. So Paul's already used himself. He's used Timothy. He's used Epaphroditus as people who are living out of a spiritually mature perspective because of certain qualities. Right? We've listed them. If you guys remember Lesson 8, when it was talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus, we took it verse by verse and said, which theme does this verse cite? It's the same qualities. It's those qualities that are elements of the formula or the pattern that we're supposed to emulate. The first one, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus demonstrated their spiritual maturity through their humility or selflessness. You can put humility or selflessness in that first point. Remember in chapter 2, he said, don't really look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He said, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's the first part of the pattern. Number two, unity is huge. Because remember, humility is the key to unity. You can't have unity without humility. You can't. If you have a bunch of alphas running around saying their way is the right way, you're not going to have unity. Somebody's going to have to come under the appropriate way. You can't look at a blue wall and somebody walk up to you and say, that's pink. No, it's not. It's blue. It either is or it isn't. There's an appropriate way. And in order to unify, you have to have an appropriate perspective for which to unify around. That's his point. Three is obedience. Paul was obedient. He called himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ. To Timothy, he said he served with me like a child serving his father. Epaphroditus was carrying the uh, letters obediently. And of course, Jesus, in perfect obedience to God the Father, carried out what he was supposed to do. Four is integrity. They all lived out what they believed. They had all grown spiritually from the moment that they believed, and they all lived like it. You guys ever wonder about some of those chumps that Paul talks about? Demas, who loved this present world, has left. Poor Demas. Yeah, that guy, he, he actually served part of the way with Paul. And then Paul kind of says, you know, he loved the world rather than the things of Christ, so he's not with me anymore. And now we all know it. And now we all know it. So, and, and really what Paul was saying there, it's less about making fun of Demas and more about saying he knew it was right. He's going to actually talk about the exact same thing here in just a second. Because he knows it was right, but he chose the world. He loves worldly things. He had an appetite for the world. And that does, that's not integrity. There's no integrity in that. If you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, then you don't have integrity in your message. It's that simple. These guys had integrity. Epaphroditus came close to death. Five is sacrifice. All of these guys sacrificed. Obviously, Jesus laid down the perfect sacrifice. Paul's ready to do the same. 
He's like, actually, I'd rather not be here. I'd rather go be with Jesus, but to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He tells the Philippians, and really, he means it to everybody else that he mentored. He's like, I don't want to be here. I want to go be with Jesus because that's very much better. But for me, to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. In a sense, that's his sacrifice. Living is his sacrifice. And so when he says to make, offer your lives as a living sacrifice, it's the same idea. We give up what we want for other people just like Paul did. That's the pattern. Join following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. That's what he's talking about. We're giving it up for each other. We're giving up what we want for the sake of the body so that we can all grow. And so that ultimately we'll have a higher quality of life here and then be glorified with Jesus and by the way, get rewarded for it. Six is love. You can't talk about sacrifice, humility, unity, all those things. We've got to talk about love. They all loved each other. This book is a love fest. It is. Paul loved the Philippians. The Philippians loved Paul. Paul loved Timothy. Timothy loved Paul and the Philippians. The Philippians missed Epaphroditus and were worried about him. Epaphroditus was worried about them because they were worried about him. This entire book is just a love fest. And I love that. Part of what we talked about at the men's retreat this weekend is that love... Hey, humility, unity, all those things are traits of God. So, you know, men don't like to talk about love. And we don't like to talk about stuff like that. But it's a masculine trait because it existed in the Godhead. They enjoyed perfect love and fellowship with one another from eternity past. That's a trait that we should all emulate, no matter what your gender is. Seven is huge. My favorite one for this book, because I think it's the main one, is participation or fellowship. This is uh, interacting with one another. It's knowing each other so that you can interact with one another. It's uniting around the common goal of making disciples. It's uh, evangelizing. It's training. It's teaching. It's praying for one another. All of those things. Fellowship, participation is huge. And it's the reason that Paul was so confident about the Philippians. I'm confident this very thing that he would get a good work, he would perfect the day of Christ Jesus because they had effectively participated. He wasn't worried about them. He knew that the, their sanctification was almost guaranteed because they were living it out. They were faithful because of their participation. Paul says to join in following his example and the pattern that they see in us, including himself. If the Philippians were to observe any of these three figures from this book, they would see these traits. We've seen them. All you got to do is look at these guys and study them, and how can you miss any of these things? I say that, but I missed obedience when I originally studied it. But for, I didn't miss all of them. If you look at these three guys and you characterize or evaluate who they are and what they were about, all of these things were there. And he says that's the pattern that you have in us. These elements are all part of the pattern that we should emulate because they're part of the pattern laid down by not just those three guys, but by Jesus. Don't forget, that's the central point in chapter 2. Have this attitude, just like he tells us to have that attitude here. Don't forget in chapter 2, he had already said, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant was made in the likeness of men. Jesus was the perfect example of humility, and he showed us the ex perfect example of sacrifice and love so that he could demonstrate the pattern for us. We're supposed to look at things through that same perspective. That's how we look at life. And that's what makes Paul's uh, perspective legitimate. It's what gives it its teeth. It's what gives it its validity because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. It's an authentic perspective. Paul's emulating Jesus Christ who set the ultimate example. And really, he, doesn't he say the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ? He doesn't say it verbatim in this book like he did in there, but it's the exact same idea. Join and follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Next, Paul's going to talk about the alternative perspective before he comes back to this authentic perspective that he's established. 
And really, this is a counterfeit perspective. And then he'll come back to the authentic one. Here's what he says. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now I tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. What do you think that means? Whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. Paul doesn't tell us who the people are uh, in direct context right here. But based on the word that he uses for enemies, when he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ, that's the word hostile. It's the same word that he uses in Colossians to describe unbelievers. So that's why I kind of lean towards that he's talking about unbelievers here, even though I don't think the other parts of this book maybe have been. However, it works either way, and I want to show you that to this chart. Can believers be enemies of the cross of Christ? We can. I think Tanner, I don't remember the exact context of what we were talking about the other day, but a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, you said something about teachers can actually do more destruction. In that way, you make yourself an enemy of the cross of Christ, just like those Judaizers have done. For them to say that Christians had to come under the Mosaic law and to be circumcised, that stands in opposition to why Jesus did what he did. Because if righteousness came through the law, Christ died needlessly. When you stand in opposition to the cross, you make yourselves an enemy of it. The whole point of Jesus coming was to die. So believers can definitely cause reputational damage to Christianity as a whole by changing the message, by not having integrity uh, to, to somebody else who's looking at you, by not living it out. You can be an enemy of the cross of Christ, but unbelievers definitely can, and they are, by nature. They're children of wrath, even as the rest of the way he says it in Ephesians. All right, what about end is destruction? Whose end is destruction? Can Jesus destroy believers? He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> really? Go ahead, Kevin. That's the part that I think that you're have to almost say they're un unbelievers but I mean there is the saying unto death that there's physical destruction like bingo face. And can God in his mercy lift up a believer because of their sin I mean you take him up off this earth he can 100% if he, if he knows it's better for you because of the decisions that you're making and the destruction that you're going to do he can lift you up. 100%. That could be part of the scourging. I don't know why. I don't know what that looks like. But he can do it 100%. But since we're studying Samuel, I think of Saul, when I think of that, mm. you know, he, he went to that witch and the next day was his last day on earth. I think that was kind of the last straw for him. I know. I agree. I've actually prayed that I'm not at my last straw. Would he be there? Yeah, for sure. I, I it's, that's scary to think that. And I want to serve, not out of fear, but you know, how much more of me is he going to put up with? <laughs> I mean, well, I if it, you're busy serving, it keeps you out of trouble. I feel like that might be true, <laughs> but that's not my motivation for serving. Of course, but, you know. <laughs> and if you get a whipping, you know he's not giving up on you. That, that's a that's a great point, because those whom he loves, not those whom he hates, it's actually a good sign. If you're taking your whoopings, all it means is that he loves you. He's trying to correct you, and he's trying to sharpen you and grow you so that you'll end up here, not here. Well, it also means that he's not just taking you home. Mm. He's going to whip you and leave you here to do better. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I love that. Because that's the end of your chance for yeah. heavenly rewards. I'm right. doing this because I love you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No more chances to earn rewards. And that's something we talk to our girls about. Because when kids ask, what about what about unborn babies? Or what about kids in Africa who never hear the gospel message that die of hunger before they are able to believe? 
And I, I always use that as an opportunity to talk to me about God's mercy. It seems bad to us, but probably, I don't know because I don't see all this, but probably those kids weren't ever going to believe in Jesus. And they were going to be destined to the eternal lake of fire. But because they died as children, they'll probably go be with the Lord. We know that David said that about his child. He said, someday I'll see him again. Next part, it says, God is their appetite. God is their appetite. So he says, their God is their appetite, actually. So for believers, this isn't talking about hunger. It's not talking about physical hunger. Because man is hungry for a lot of things. We're hungry for power. We have a sexual appetite. We have a desire for money. We have all those things. And can believers do that? Can believers have make other things their God? Can they have an appetite for false gods? 100% we can. Same thing for unbelievers. It's the exact same, by the way. That's when we're guilty of doing exactly what Paul tells us not to do. Selfish ambition is just doing what you want, getting yours. You want to elevate yourself. It's your pride. Your flesh pulls you to do that. It's natural. It's natural for you to want to do it. To fulfill your own sexual desire. To to comfort eat, which I'm guilty of. Uh, All these things that your flesh pulls you to do is the part of you that wants what you want regardless of what God wants for you. When we serve our own selves, especially our bodies. And here's one. This is probably actually my favorite. He says, whose glory is in their shame. This is a perspective verse. This is perspective ver- uh, verbiage. Because unbelievers and even some immature believers think that it's about them. And they think, if I can stand up in front of people and teach, I'll get glorified. Just like the Pharisees. If I can give out my money and blow my trumpets when I give it, people are going to think I'm a big deal. If I pray on the street corner with my long tassels, and I say, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. People, oh, that's a big deal for me. To them, that's their glory. To God, it's their shame. I, I, when I read that, I think of those Romans 1 people. I think it's Romans 1 that said, they're not only doing wrong, they're trying to get other people to do wrong with them. Yeah, yeah. it could be one hundred. That, that, that is an aspect of it for sure. That is an aspect of it. That they are They're doing shameful things and they want other people to join with them in doing the same yeah, sort of thing. I think so, I think so. When we look at glory, you can you can interchange the word boast. So what are they boasting about that they think is so good, but that from God's perspective is shameful? And I think all of those things apply and can be part of it. In uh, which I which I have there rotten fruit. So they could be doing stuff that they think is good, but it's actually dead works. And you can act, Paul actually goes into that in First Corinthians, where he talks about their dead works. He says, "Look, you're supposed to grow on from the elementary things." Or no, it's it's Hebrews six. He says, "You're supposed to grow on from this stuff." We don't need to. And he actually says, "We don't need to go into justification by faith. We don't need to go into laying in the pans. We don't need to go all into all that stuff. That's elementary. That's basic stuff." <clears throat> it's dead. He uses the word dead works there, which is why I bring it out. Because there are things that people are going to do that they think they're going to get glorified for. They think they're going to get rewarded for. But Jesus said, because your motives are wrong, or as Paul says, because it's wood, hay, stubble, straw, it's going to get burnt up. It's not actually a good work. You know, there's no reward in that. That's a dead work. There's no reward. Unbelievers are always. <laughs> By nature, they're trading the temporal, the here and now, for the eternal. Maybe it's because they don't believe there is an eternal. Maybe it's because they don't care that there is an eternal. But by nature, if you don't think that that's true, you're trading in the here and now. I don't get it. I've been a believer for most of my life, and so most of my experience in this life, several times I said, I don't know how people do it. If you don't believe... Number one, that there's a God. Number two, if you don't believe in Jesus, not just that he was real, but his Savior, how do you get through life? 
it's bad enough as a Christian. We have a hope. What do they have? They have their selfish ambition. They have their pride. They have their striving and reaching and trying to attain something that they're never going to get. And in that way, they're trading here and now for the eternal. And then they set their mind on earthly things. This is believers can do this too. We can set our mind on earthly things, just like we talked about up here. Uh, when we're enemies of the cross of Christ, we can chase after money. We can chase after sex. We can chase after power. We can chase after reputation. We can chase after all of that stuff. That's earthly stuff. Or, really, it's anything that's not spiritual. It's not anything that's in the interest of Jesus Christ. Like Demas. We know better. Because we have a hope. Because we put our faith in Jesus. Unbelievers don't have a hope. And they don't know better. You can't ask a dog to fly or a bird to bark. It's not going to happen. It's not natural. We know better. We don't have to sin. We know we have a hope. We know we're not supposed to do that stuff. We have a conscience that answers. We're made spiritually alive and given the Holy Spirit who convicts us. They don't know better. So whether or not they're believers or immature believers, they're unbelievers or immature believers, they are living life by the wrong perspective and mindset. Paul's point is that they're going to endure suffering, whether it's by discipline or whether it's by eternal separation. We can make application either way. Because what he's really talking about is a perspective. You have a choice. You want to choose to look at things from a mature perspective, or do you want to look at things from a counterfeit perspective? There's only one. There's only one real choice. And then he follows this idea of setting their mind on earthly things by saying, for our citizenship, our form of government is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity. Conform to the image of Christ. He's going to transform us from the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, who I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm. Stand firm. Attain to the level which you've attained. Press on towards maturity. Not that I've already attained it, but I press on so that I can reach forward to the goal. Paul returns to the authentic perspective from verses 15 through 18 by saying that our real citizenship is in heaven. Our real citizenship is in heaven. That's part of the perspective that you have to look at things through. You're not from Purcell in the long term. I'm not from Hennessy. My citizenship's not there. My citizenship's not in Stillwater. You're a citizen of heaven. Because if I start this line... And I go all the way down and all the way back and I go all around all these walls and all over the church. If that line is your existence, there's your time on earth. You're going to live forever. You're going to exist forever. Your citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're from. Right now, we're just ambassadors. We're not created to spend eternity on this earth. Or our, well, a earth. The new one? Right. On this earth. <laughs> I should have put on this. And I did put on this you earth. You did. We are, we are not created to spend eternity on this earth. We are aliens living as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf. We're ambassadors. We're just an alien. We're waiting for our Savior, who when he comes will finish our process. No matter where you're at here, whether you're here or here, he's going to finish the process. Someday we will be glorified to look like him. Hopefully you're here because you're going to have a better experience in that long line. You're going to have a better position. You're going to have better eternal rewards. It's a small, small price to pay. And that's the appropriate perspective. Because Paul paid the price. Timothy paid the price. Epaphroditus paid the price. 
because they were humble, because they had the appropriate perspective, because they had integrity, because they sacrificed, because they loved, because all that stuff happened here, they're going to be glorified in a, in a better way there. That's pretty cool. Small price to pay from their perspective. Yeah, just you drawing that line, put it into perspective. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that, and that's, you have to remember, that's, that's, what, that's exactly the point. That's what he's saying. We're not citizens. We're citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. I just made graphic what he's saying. You're created for eternity, and that eternity is not here. And what you do on this earth matters. That's why in the end of verse 1, what does he call them? My joy and my crown. He's already established in chapter 2 that he's here for them, and he's going to get a reward based on what they do. Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who's at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. And he says later, don't do anything uh, with grumbling or disputing. And then at the end of that verse, he says, so that the day of Christ all have reason to glory. Because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain, because you guys are living it out. They're his joy and his crown. At the judgment seat of Christ, how effective they are is going to go back to him. He's going to get rewarded for it. And that's going to go back to Jesus because none of it would have been possible without him. That's why when we say that when there's humility, there's exaltation. When you humble yourselves under God and do his will at your cost, really, he's going to exalt you. And because Jesus was the perfect example, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And a name has been given to him, a name that is above all names. Because he's exalted by what he did. And we get a little taste of that if we do the same thing. And this, it's, it, it's kind of a difficult thing to process because eventually you get to the point to say, what am I doing here? How am I making a difference that's going to matter in this long run, not in this short one? And the fact of the matter is that you can do it right here and now. Every single time that you work in the nursery, you may be training the next JB. You may be taking care of somebody who's going to make a difference. And because of your sacrifice, because of what you're doing, you're going to get rewarded for it. You might be setting up chairs for somebody who's never believed that comes in because they sat in that chair they believe. Or because you're running the sound. And because JB's able to go through a microphone on Facebook, somebody hears the message. You're effectively participating. You're sacrificing what you could be doing for the good of the body, for the good of the world. And if we're effective in that, there's a reward in it. Jesus, Jesus makes a big deal out of it. He says, you're going to get rewarded for as much as taking somebody a cold drink of water in my name. That's powerful if you think about it. And it should motivate us, because that's, that's what Paul's trying to do. Don't forget, one of our goals is to motivate us to do that. It's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, if you guys look at this through the appropriate perspective, the authentic, not the counterfeit perspective, it'll motivate you to live a life that will result in somebody being your joy and your crown. So we're awaiting our Savior, who when he comes will finish our process by transforming us into final conformity with him. I wrote that this is your verse. This is the longest one we'll have this year, but it's 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. He's actually talking about the rapture. We're all going to die. We will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. That's when he uh, transformed the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's when we get our imperishable body. That's when we'll be changed. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know this about those who are dead so that you're not going to grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the rapture won't perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are actually going to rise first. Don't be worried about those, because they're actually going to rise first. Then, we who are alive and remain are going to get caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
That's when the dead are going to be raised to imperishable, glorified bodies. That's when we, if we're alive in the rapture, will be changed in the moment the twinkle of an eye. So whether we're part of the group that's dead and raised, or part of the group that's raptured and raised, in that moment we'll get our glorified body. This process will be complete, and we'll look like Jesus. That's cool. Do you ever wonder if, there, if it's, there's going to be enough time, like, when he raises the dead in Christ first, the people who are still alive will be like, there they go. It's almost our turn. Like, or if it's going to be just like, you who knows? won't even so, be able to. Yeah. I was like, I'd like to like see that yeah. for just a second. It'd be cool. So does the process of glorification <laughs> does that really refer to our spirit or our body? Because I, I guess in the in the rapture, it's like you know you get an imperishable body, but I mean, do you get glorification when you die because you're with Christ at that moment? It depends. Waiting on your waiting on your body, pretty much. What if physics change? What if our spiritual body is a physical body? But I mean, isn't there? like a delay because I mean when you die you're present with God right yeah but you don't have your body until you're oh you're talking you're talking about if you're not raptured but if you die before yeah. the rapture right. yeah, yeah so I don't know and there's not a good answer nobody sh- should be able to say they know for a fact all we know is that based on Second Corinthians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord we don't know what that looks like some people believe in a suspended state to where when you die you just don't know and then boom oh okay I'm, I'm at the judgment seat of Christ it's like getting surgery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But there's, there's, there's no way to know. There's no way to know. Because really, what you're asking is, where are those people right now? Because the rapture hasn't happened yet, and there are Christians who are dead. To yeah. be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Present with the yeah. Lord. Yeah. So we were talking. Uh, some friends and I were talking about the, uh, you know, in Luke 16, we was talking about the, uh, you know, the, the heart of the earth, and you've got the paradise on one side and the torments on the other. And uh, you know, we we're talking about. Well, I don't know. This is probably getting way off topic, but you know, when uh, when Jesus died, did he actually go and pick up those people, the Old Testament saints, led captivity captive, and then uh, said, "Hey, you know, sins paid for now." And yeah. so you can come with me, or are they down? I, mean, I, I, I used to watch that show Lost. Oh, God. I don't know if you guys ever watched it. <laughs> yeah. But I always think that that's when they move the island. I didn't ever watch it. So okay. It's really, yeah. stressful, though. I, Jesus. I got too stressed <laughs> out. Yeah, I was like, forget it. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. But, and, and nobody really can say for a fact the exact timing of it all. Because God exists outside of timing. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. the other... Yeah. Thing. <laughs> and, I, and, there's, and that's why I think Paul gets into all this and he says, look, don't wrangle about words. Don't, don't get into genealogies or some of that stuff. People, it doesn't, you know, what good is it going to do? But I'll tell you what you do need to know. And I have this conversation with my dad all the time. My dad's a scientist. And so Genesis 1, he's always wanting to talk about a gap theory. I'm like, Dad, here's the deal. God gave us everything that we need to know. So don't waste our time on stuff that we can't know. Yeah, but there's so much that we could know if we just read. Yeah, and, and that's, but, but that's my point. That's part of what he has given us. Yeah. He hasn't, you know, some stuff he doesn't want us to know. I don't know how God, this is way off the topic, but when you think about predestination, I don't know how God knows who isn't going to believe and allows them to not believe. That's that, the hardest one for me. That bothers me. Doesn't mean that he's not just. Doesn't mean that he's not righteous. It doesn't mean that he's not good. Well, he, he knows he wants everyone to believe, though. He does. He he says, wants it. But he, I mean, he knows in ahead of time because it's not in time. I guess who's going to know who's not? Right. That's exactly right. He doesn't make people believe is the point. But he also doesn't. Well, you want to create robots. Right. So you, that's where the free will. Came. Yeah, but the point is, is that we don't have to know. We don't. He's, he's told us and given us everything that we need to know. And that, there's comfort. And that, that's, that's actually what he says here. Comfort one another with these words. Yeah. Know that it's going to be okay. Know that whether you're dead, you're going to be raised and changed. And if you're alive, you're going to be raised and changed. That's comforting. It should be comforting to us. It is, but I mean, there's so much more to know, too. I mean, I think JB made the analogy one time as he feels like he's sitting on top of a mountain eating it with a teaspoon, yeah. you know, as far as reading the Word. There's so many questions. There are, there are, but, but that's the thing, but because there are so many unanswerable questions, I told you before in lesson one, I'm like John Wayne and McClintock, yeah. let's get to the rat killer. 
Let's get to the bottom line. I don't need to know the rest of the stuff. Just give me what I need to know. And Jesus does that. God gives that to us in the Scripture. The rest of that stuff, man, I could spend the rest of my life trying to figure that out and not grow because I'm not putting my effort and time into the stuff that matters. But I think we're going to know all that at that 20 sure. of the eye. We're going to know all the, those questions that we have. And if not, we can go ask you. Yeah. Hey, Paul, what'd you see? Yeah. What'd you see anyway? You couldn't tell us. Now you can tell me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got that whole line. And I'll come and tell you if I find out first. Well, I mean, it's also, you know, Jesus is kind of spacking these people around. Like, you know, it's, it's right here in the Word, and you read it. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you know the difference between the stuff you're not supposed to know and the right. stuff that's like and Jesus, right there? Yeah, it's just not obvious. If I, Jesus is just going to tell us some parables anyway. I'm going to go ask Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. All right, summary. We're all at different points in our Christian maturity. If we know people here, part of your job in the body is to help them go here. Because he gave you a gift. He gave you at least one spiritual gift to serve. That gift isn't for you. If he gave you evangelism, it's to get people who are here, here. But if you don't have the gift of evangelism, you're probably somewhere here for training and equipping. Now, you can still affect people here, obviously, with helps and things like that. Well, a lot of gifts, really, can still do that. But my point is just that they're for the body. Everyone has room for growth. That's what Paul says. Not that I've already attained it, not that I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold of me. We're to persist in our Christian life. We should. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. The mindset that we're supposed to have is one of humility and persistence. We're supposed to, in humility, live our life with the idea of persisting, of growing. In this body, we're never going to be completely conformed to Jesus' image, and that's okay, because someday we will be when we're glorified. A mature believer takes a perspective of humility and persistence. Remember that. Humility is not natural. It's just not. Okay, through the Christian life, is full of, though the Christian life is full of ups and downs, we're to live life based on the level of growth we've experienced. That's the idea. Don't go back. Don't go backwards. Go forward. Forget what lays behind. Reach on for what, li- what lies ahead. If God was done with you, he'd lift you up. Paul and his companions' pattern includes humility, selflessness, unity, obedience, integrity, sacrifice, love, fellowship, participation, ours should too. The world's pattern includes the opposites of those things. We're citizens of heaven, not earth. We are ambassadors waiting for our Savior and King. So application, realize that the way you choose to look at things affects your mindset and behavior. Live life with a, mi- live life with a mindset of humility and persistence. Continue to grow. Live a life of integrity and harmony with your level of growth. It should be integrity. If you know it, live like it. Remember that you're just an ambassador on earth, not a citizen of earth, this earth. <laughs> Memorize 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Know the charts that we looked at and the elements that Paul talked about. So really, those are the themes. And we'll talk about that. your test will be those things. So. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions... Regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us.